Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. And we are continuing with our walk through the Gospel of John. We're very near the end, only two more chapters to go, so you're probably excited by that if you've been following all the way from the beginning. If you're jumping into the middle, I really encourage you to go back to the start and get the whole context for the book, because it's been a fascinating journey to see how John the Disciple put together his recollections and memories and stories of Jesus into a form that would last uh, for centuries. Uh, and people are still inspired by the way that he communicated the truth of who Jesus is and was and will be in the coming uh, ages. So encourage you to keep going with that. So this is uh, episode 48 of season one, and our title for today is Don't Gamble with the Cross, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 17 through 24. So why don't we just start there? Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, and with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. What a lousy job. How would you like to be the guard at the place of the skull? That's what it was called, Golgotha in, Hebrew, in Aramaic, which is sort of uh, the common form of Hebrew that was spoken in Palestine at that time. It was Calvary in Latin, but both mean the same thing, a brutal inhuman place filled with the groans of dying men and women and the buzzing of flies. The sight of the bodies impaled on crosses, stretched on for yards and yards and miles even. The smell of dead and dying men. You probably had to screw up big time to get assigned to that duty. It was an awful job, even for the most seasoned, roughneck Roman soldier. The guards were there for two reasons. The first reason was to actually carry out the execution. I don't really want to go through describing the process of nailing a human being to the cross. You probably have already heard that in other places and know how awful it was. It was just a gruesome job to do that to another human being. I mean, think about that, uh, to pound stakes, iron stakes through the palms and through the wrists and through the feet of another human being. But that was their first job. That's what they did every day. And the second was to guard against any rescue attempt or any emotional outburst from grieving family members or crowds. The American novelist Ernest Hemingway once wrote a short story about these four guards, about what they did when their shift was over. 
And he describes them as going to the local tavern and just drowning themselves in booze. That's the only way they could get through the day, get through it day after day. They had to numb themselves to really kind of pickle their brains so they didn't have to feel what normal people would feel after what they did. But in Hemingway's story, they talk about this man and how he died a different death than the other criminals that they had crucified and really how much they respected him and how they saw his courage and all the rest. It's, a, it's an interesting story if you want to find a copy of Ernest Hemingway's short stories. I'm sure it's in there. So these men, they were professional soldiers, and maybe they were good men sucked into a sick system, maybe. Maybe they were like the guards in Abu Ghraib, the prison in Iraq, where they tried to excuse their sadism by saying they were just following orders. You know, the only perk of the job was that the guards got to keep the personal effects of the criminals that they were crucifying. It wasn't much, but it was something. And so after coldly crucifying Jesus, they start throwing dice for the only thing of value that he had, his inner robe. Now John tells us this detail that it was a seamless robe. It was the kind of robe lovingly woven by mothers and given to their sons, which they would then, when they're ready to embark on their chosen profession. Clothes were valuable in ancient times. Cloaks and garments were, were hard to come by. You couldn't just run down to the local mall or hit the gap, you know, when you needed some new threads. And this particular robe was seamless. So that was special, and they didn't want to cut it into four pieces. So they decided it's winner take all. There have been a number of uh, fictionalized accounts of what happened to Jesus's robe. The novel The Robe by Stuart Langston is kind of the most famous. It's a stirring, very romantic kind of majestic epic that follows Marcellus, a Roman soldier who wins Christ's robe as a gambling prize. He sets out on a quest to find, quest to find the truth about the Nazarene's robe at a search that reaches into the heart of Christianity. The novel was made into a pretty good movie in 1953. It starred Richard Burton. But all of that is, of course, myth. Because all we know for sure is that Jesus was naked on that cross. You never see him portrayed that way out of modesty, but the Roman practice was to strip every last stitch of clothing off the condemned. There was no reason to think that Jesus was exempted from that humiliation. Jesus was stripped of everything so that his humiliation would be complete. Think about the transition from glory to humiliation. Back in chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory of the one and only Son, the glory of the one who created all things, now reduced to the worst kind of public ridicule. That's what makes the Apostle Paul's words so powerful in Philippians 2, 6, where he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. And Paul's readers knew what that meant. Death on a cross. It was the lowest form of punishment. Dying naked before indifferent guards. Now, God, did God have a purpose in this total degradation? Well, I think he did. If you go back with me to the beginning of the Bible, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Paradise... That perfect place, Eden, where they were without sin and at one with each other and with their creator. 
Tucked away in chapter 2, verse 25, it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There was no need for modesty in the garden. They were perfectly comfortable with each other and with God being completely naked. Nakedness is so much more than just not having clothes on. It describes a sense of security and safety and openness of acceptance and vulnerability. Uh, Those of you who've read my novel will recognize that at the very end, uh, the heroes are naked together and not ashamed. And so there was nothing to hide or to hide from in the garden. It was all divine goodness. But if you keep going in Genesis and skip to chapter 3, verse 7, all that changes. As soon as they disobey the Lord, sin enters in, and it says in Scripture, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves made coverings for themselves. You see, the first consequence of sin was a sense of shame and exposure. They were embarrassed before God and thought somehow to hide themselves. In reality, it just called attention to what they had done. No fig leaves and now fig leaves. Now they were not what God created them to be. They had been polluted, corrupted. They were disobedient, damaged, insecure, and they wanted to hide from that. And what did God do in verse 21 of chapter 3? It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God clothed them. Now listen to this. The very first act of grace is that God clothed them. The very first animal sacrifice was for the garments that clothed Adam and Eve. The very first shedding of blood was to cover their sin. And this is immediately preceded by the very first promise foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The Messiah would one day triumph over evil. So there's actually a connection between clothing and the cross. The clothing came between Adam and Eve and God. It showed that there was a problem in their relationship called sin, but it also showed that God was gracious and he would provide the solution for the sin of the world. On the cross, Christ was as naked as Adam and Eve in the garden. Christ took all our shame and sin. Christ became the sinner for us, unclothed before God, while all our sin rested on him. And God knew this was important, so much so that he made sure it was, it was in the prophecies written of the Messiah about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let, the, let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones, and people stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. Pretty amazing that that was written a thousand years before it happened. Jesus was stripped naked, bearing our sin, our humiliation, our shame. And I'm so glad the story doesn't end there. I don't know if you've ever read the book by Tony Campolo. It's called It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. 
Friday with its dark despair. It ends in death. But the story doesn't end with this shame. It's Friday, but we know Sunday's coming. Resurrection Sunday comes when Jesus conquers death and shame and sin. The story goes on to victory. Just as Paul keeps going on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the God the Father. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And what is Jesus wearing in the resurrection? Do you remember? Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is now robed in white, a robe of victory. And in Luke 24, 49, he tells us his disciples that they were going to get a wardrobe makeover, that they will be clothed in power from on high, clothed in power through the Holy Spirit. And in heaven, there's a new set of clothes for you. The picture of heaven that we get in Revelation 6:11 shows the followers of Jesus clothed in fine linen, white robes of the saints. Isaiah the prophet described this glorious transition in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as the bride adorns herself with jewels. That's Jesus now, covering the nakedness of our sin with his own righteousness and salvation. You know, in the uh, second Harry Potter uh, story, The Chamber of Secrets, there's a sad little elf named Dobby, who is the household slave of the sinister Malfoy family. The sign of his enslavement is that he has to wear basically a grimy, tattered sack and has no real clothing. The only way for Dobby to be set free is for his owner to present him with new clothes. And one of the highlights of that movie is when Harry Potter tricks Malfoy into giving Dobby a sock. Just a sock, but it's real clothes. And in that moment, Dobby is set free. Friends, Christ has set us free. He is giving you freedom today, clothing you with his own glory and righteousness. The greatest exchange we can imagine, we give to Christ our sin. He gives to us his righteousness. These indifferent guards throwing dice at Jesus' feet, they had no clue what was happening. When Jesus was stripped naked on that cross, there was a cosmic shift in the universe, and they missed it. So friends, don't gamble with the cross. Don't gamble with this thing called salvation. So many folks are indifferent to the sacrifice of Jesus, like those guards. Not hostile, not intentional, just indifferent. Don't do that. Challenge other people not to do that, but to live for him. He died for you so that you could live for him. It's as simple as that. Christ gives you new clothes. He takes away your tattered, filthy garments. He takes away all your shame. He restores you with beauty and with wholeness and mercy and love. He clothes you with his own righteousness and goodness, his very self. He offers you security, safety, openness, acceptance. What that really means is he offers you grace. What a wabi-sabi experience that would be. So live for him this week and take care. <laughs>